Well, today, of course, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Before we, uh, before we uh, make the transition to the Lord's Supper, uh, we come to lef- Lesson 17 in our series, Excelling in Our Love for One Another. And in this series, we have been walking uh, through the New Testament epistles uh, to discover the one another verses which teach us how to love one another in the family of God. Uh, The title of today's message is Praying for One Another, with our focal passage being James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, where prayer is mentioned four different times. And if I uh, had the time to also cover verses uh, 17 and 18, uh, prayer is mentioned a total of seven times. Uh, So this section of Scripture is all about a prayer. Now, the one another verse is found in verse 16, which reads, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So please follow along in your uh, sermon notes. I hope you picked up a copy as you came in. And uh, let's look at when we are to pray for one another. Uh, first, we're to pray for those, James tells us, who are hurting emotionally. We're to pray for those hurting emotionally. Uh, Look at James chapter 5 verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Now when James asks, is anyone among you suffering? The word translated suffering literally means to suffer misfortune or to be under great uh, stress. James is talking about internal distress caused by external circumstances. Any type of pressure coming from the outside that is breaking your heart on the inside. It could be a relational, uh, financial, or health crisis. It could be suffering that comes from being wronged. Uh, mistreated, abused, or persecuted. Now, going back to James chapter 5, verse 13, notice James mentions in the same verse suffering and being cheerful, prayer and praise. Why? Because prayer, authentic prayer, leads to the praise of God. Because prayer takes the focus off the size of the problem and places it on the size of God. It takes the focus off our inability to rejoice in God's unlimited ability. Prayer moves us from the impossibility of our circumstances to the impossibility of God breaking His promise to cause all things to work for our spiritual good and His greater glory. You know, I love how Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, reads from the paraphrase, the message. Listen to this. It says, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Now, let me just pause right there. I'm going to read the rest of the passage. Do you know what the fundamental difference is between prayer and worry? Worry is simply Meditating on my problems. And prayer is meditating on God. 
And we each have that choice when difficulty comes. Am I going to place my focus on the problem and meditate on that as it just gets bigger and bigger and the bigger it gets, the greater the impossibility, the greater the impossibility, the more I panic, the more I panic, the greater I plunge into anxiety and worry, which leads me down a path of unbelief where I totally miss the fact that God is present and He's available to help me. Or am I going to turn from the problems to focus on God and to focus on how great He is and that there's nothing too difficult with God, which of course inspires faith hope, and love. So he says, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. A brother or sister in Christ who is suffering emotional hurt desperately needs the church family. They desperately need us because that emotional hurt often clouds their ability to see God, to be able to view their circumstances from a godly perspective. Uh, All they know is, what? I don't want to hurt anymore. They need us to embrace them with unconditional love. They need us to intercede for them. They need us to pray for them, and if possible, pray for them in their hearing. God may or may not change the outward circumstances, but He will always work to change us on the inside by refining our character, giving peace in the storm, and a song of joy in the suffering. You know, uh, most of you are familiar with 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Let me just uh, use this to encourage us uh, to reach out to one another when we're emotionally hurting. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 3, it reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now listen very carefully. God wants to take every pain you've ever experienced, every hurt, and He wants to transform that into an open door to minister to others who are hurting. And that's why God often will allow us to go through difficulty. That in that difficulty, we come to a place of brokenness, to see our utter and absolute dependence upon God. That creates a greater desperation for God, which results in a greater determination to seek God, to know His grace in our trials. And the reason often God allows us to go through that is to equip us, to be able to minister to others that go through similar difficulties so that we can relate 
where we truly understand what they're going through. And we don't even have to say anything. We just have to take them in our arms and say, we love you. We understand. And I can tell you from experience, God is good. And this thing will pass. And like he did in my life, God will use it in your life for your good and his greater glory. So we need in the church family to become very open, uh, very honest, transparent with one another about our own difficulties and challenges and what God is teaching us to be able to minister to one another. So we're to pray for those who are hurting emotionally. But we're also to pray for those, the second point there in your notes, pray for those hurting physically. Pray for those hurting physically. James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, with the Lord's Supper, I don't have time to delve deeply into this, but let me address it this way. For years here at Edgewood, we have practiced these verses. Uh, the church elders have prayed over innumerable sick individuals and anointing them with oil. Uh, the word translated six, uh, sick in uh, verse 14 literally means uh, without strength. Uh, we believe James is referring to an extremely serious illness uh, for which the sick person uh, requests the elders of the church to pray over them. Now, why do we anoint with oil? Because oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And when we anoint the sick person with oil, we're simply acknowledging our total and absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit, because God alone can heal. Now, as we look at these verses in James, we have to admit two very obvious truths. First, it is crystal clear in the Bible. And throughout church history, to this present day, God miraculously heals people. Second, obvious truth, it is crystal clear in the Bible and throughout church history to this present day, God does not heal every believer. And it's very important to see what uh, the Bible teaches, that there are, look at your notes, three kinds of sickness, three kinds of sickness, and get this down. First, the Bible teaches a sickness for death. Psalm 116, verse 15, what's that first word? Precious. Precious in the sight of who? The Lord is the death of His saints. See, this is a kind of sickness that God uses to take you home to be with Him. There is some sickness you will never recover from, because God wants 
to move you from your residence here on earth to your eternal home in heaven. And this kind of sickness, of course, is a good thing. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1, to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. It's my advantage. And he also stated to depart from this life and to be with Christ is what? Very, very much better than remaining here. But there's not only a sickness for death, there is, and the Bible teaches this, sickness for discipline. Sickness for discipline. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That is a reference to death. The context of this verse is dealing with the abuse of the Lord's Supper. The very thing we're going to celebrate in a few moments. Members of the church at Corinth were abusing the Lord's Supper because they were partaking of the Lord's Supper while at the same time walking in immorality or expressing unloving attitudes towards one another in the church family. This resulted in God disciplining the church members, even to the point of prematurely removing them from earth and taking them to heaven to prevent further shame being brought upon the name of Christ. This is why in the larger context of the 1 Corinthians 11 passage we read, and again this is very appropriate with us celebrating the Lord's Supper, you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Why? Because if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves... We would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. As I mentioned, in a few minutes we will observe the Lord's Supper. All of us, you would do well to examine yourself to ensure there is nothing between you and God. Nothing between you and another person that You have not sought to make right as far as it is possible with you. And the Scripture says, if we would to do that, if we will examine ourselves, we will not be judged by God. Because what? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus took that judgment for you. And as we talked about last Sunday, that's why we have a great and faithful high priest. We can boldly come to him, even in our sin, even in our failure, knowing that as we are open, as we are honest, transparent, confessing our sin, we'll be met with mercy. We'll be met with great, great grace. So there's sickness for death, there's sickness for discipline, but then there's sickness uh, for displaying God. Sickness for displaying God. 
Jesus referring to a man who had been born blind since birth said this in John 9, 3. He points to him with his disciples and he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened his blindness, so that, there's cause, there's purpose, there's reason, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. God uses sickness to display his power and grace to a lost world, and God does this, don't miss this now, in one of two ways, in one of two ways. God can, and He still does today, miraculously heal to demonstrate His power. And He most often does this to authenticate and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. The verse we just read is an example of that. Jesus miraculously healed the blind man to demonstrate that He truly was the Son of God and that His message was true and it should be believed and trusted in. But God can also allow us to endure sickness to demonstrate the all-sufficiency of His grace. For example, there is Fanny Crosby, who was also blind for close to 95 years, but not healed here on earth. Instead, God gave her great spiritual eyesight, despite her physical blindness. She wrote, if you're not familiar with her life, incredible life. She was born in uh, 1820, uh, died in uh, 1915. She wrote over 9,000 Christian hymns with more than 100 million copies printed. Not to mention her extensive efforts in her rescue mission work. By the age of 23, she was addressing the United States Congress, House of Representatives and the Senate, giving testimony before them of God's grace and love and mercy in her life and that same grace and mercy that was being extended to them. And during her long life of 95 years, just like Billy Graham, she literally ministered to every president of the United States, interacted with them, ministered to them. By the end of the 19th century, she literally was a household name in America, with everyone knowing her testimony for Christ. Well, which one brought greater glory to God? The blind man in John 9 who experienced a miraculous healing or Fanny Crosby who endured physical blindness for close to 95 years? Well, the answer to that, that's not for you or me to decide. Only God makes that decision. Because God is the only one who knows in each individual case what will work for the greater spiritual development of his child and his greater glory. Now going back to James 5, verses 14 and 15, look now there in your notes at two conditions for healing prayer. First, 
we must pray with the right motive. Praying with the right motive. And that motive is to exalt God's name. We must pray with the right motive to exalt God's name. James 5.14, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now listen, beloved, the phrase, in the name of the Lord, is much more than something that we just tack on to the end of our prayers. To pray in the name of the Lord means our motive in coming to God is that His name be exalted. In the answer to the prayer, that His name be lifted up, that He be put on display. It is also an acknowledgement that God alone is the one who determines how best His name is to be exalted. As we saw in the examples of the blind man in John 9 and Fanny Crosby. Now let me just... God's been really working on me here for many, many years... And, and, and I have not arrived, but let me just share this. There is such a rest of faith when we totally surrender to God. And when I say totally surrender to God, I mean, God, I give you the freedom to arrange the affairs, circumstances, relationships, the all things in my life the way that you deem best to achieve your plans and purposes in and through my life. In other words, what I'm simply saying is God is the one who loves me most, true? Is there anyone that loves you more than God loves you? And he demonstrated that love on Calvary's cross that we'll celebrate in just a few moments. And that one who loves you most is the sovereign God. Who's omniscient. Knows beginning from the end. Who's all powerful. Well, I got great news for you. The one who loves you most knows what's best for you. I've shared this before, but I think a, a great example in the Scripture that helps us see this is the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1. He's in prison. He's awaiting trial before the fanatic Nero. He does not know if he's going to live or be martyred for his faith. How does he pray? And what you see is this wonderful rest of faith, of trusting God. And he makes this glorious statement at verse 20. He said, yeah, here I am in prison. I don't know what's going to happen. And he says, but this is my earnest hope and expectation of God, that I not be put to shame in anything, but that Christ right now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is a man who knew God intimately. He knew that the God who loved him most knew what was best for him and he could rest in the sovereignty of God. You know, uh, 
if I could just be very transparent for a moment uh, about a personal trial in my own life where, again, not arrived, but God's been teaching me this. Uh, uh, four years ago, I was diagnosed with a, um, a chronic condition. It's not life-threatening. Uh, it's not uh, near as big a problem as what many of y'all have to deal with. You know, I think of someone like Jeremy Williams, our precious brother and his trials and of course you look at Jeremy and you know you just are amazed at God's grace and he's a picture of everything we've been uh, talking talking about uh, but it is it's been a significant trial in my life it's something that I live with literally 24 7 uh, it prevents me from having any significant sleep I can't sleep for any length of time without waking up multiple times through the night, so I constantly deal with uh, fatigue, and it's a thing that plagues me even through the daytime, very distracting. Uh, it involves some pain, not a lot of pain, but it's just very basically irritating. And, uh, and have I asked God to heal me? Yes, I have. Matter of fact, I asked God as recently as yesterday uh, to heal me. But let me, let me, let me very, be very honest and transparent as well, how God has taught me to pray. I say, God, Show me mercy and heal me. And I trust that that healing, if it comes, will resound to the praise and glory of your grace. But this is how I pray. I say, God, you're omniscient. You know what is best, not me. Matter of fact, you know right now, if you were to heal me, if that would send leanness to my soul. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, the Bible says, we talk about God works all things together for our good. Well, what's the good? Well, the psalmist says, nearness to God is my good. So whatever draws me nearer to God is what? Good for me. Anything... That helps me see my dependence, as we talked about earlier, that creates a desperation for God and drives me to God. That's good. So I say, God, I'm just going to trust your wisdom. You know what is best for me. You know how to use this. And as I began praying that way, you know what God did? You know... You know, I don't know if God's going to heal me at some point in my life. The doctors say I'll go to my death with this condition. But only God knows that. But what God did, he he used this. He as as I began to pray that way, he prompted me to use this in my prayer life. And what I've done, I've developed uh, a list of people that I'm praying for that let's say that it's critical situations. It could be health situations. Jeremy Williams is on that prayer list. It could be some people that uh, marriages are struggling. It, it could be a lot of different things. And as I go through the day, as I wake up multiple times at night, I use that as a prompt to pray. So my point is this. Again, I'm just giving the glory to God. I'm still struggling with this. But, My affliction has resulted in your benefit. It has totally revolutionized my prayer life. 
And many of you I, that have been through some of these situations over the last, I've been praying for you literally around the clock. I just use that as an example. Again, that's just God's grace. Where, and, and I'm still struggling. Please pray for me. One of the things I pray for, God, you know, don't let me become critical. Don't let me to complain. Don't let me murmur. You know, let me, let me praise you, rejoice in this, and, and use it for your honor. So I just, I'm just, I just want to be transparent. Using that as an example that we, we can trust God. The one who loves us most knows what is best, and we can trust him. So we must pray with the right motive to exalt God's name, which means, again, as we just mentioned, that our motive is to see him lifted up, and it's an acknowledgement that he knows best how to exalt his name. The second condition that you see there in your notes is praying for the right purpose. Not only with the right motive, but the right purpose. And that is to execute God's will. To execute God's will. James 5.15, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Notice, this promise is not a blank check that guarantees healing every time. The promise of healing is conditioned upon what? The prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is simply prayer offered with the assurance that what is being asked for is God's will. Which means what? I must first discern God's will and can't just assume. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, not in your sermon notes, but listen. And this is the confidence we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. Prayer is not trying to bend God's will to your will. Prayer is bending your will to His Prayer is not trying to persuade God to do something He is reluctant to do. Prayer is cooperating with God to accomplish what He longs to do. Prayer plugs you into the power of God to execute His will. Let me give you an illustration I hope will be helpful. Prayer could be likened to a safety deposit box in the bank vault. The bank has a key and you have a key. Neither key will open the box alone. It requires both keys. God holds the key by which all decisions are made. He is the sovereign God. But we hold the key by which those decisions are executed here on earth. And that key is the prayer of faith. And there are a couple of serious implications related to this. First, as we already mentioned, you cannot pray a prayer of faith until you first discern God's will. But then second, there are a number of blessings, including healing, we miss out on because we never aggressively pursue God to discern and execute His will by inserting the key of faith. So we're to pray for those hurting emotionally, pray for those hurting physically, and then pray for those hurting spiritually. 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. We need to make the transition into the Lord's Supper. How many times 
have we seen in this sermon series, we cannot live the Christian life without relying and depending on one another in the family of God. And that's what's being said here. And listen now, listen, listen. Listen, let me have your attention. The first step in gaining victory over any stronghold of sin is to become honest, not just with God, with other believers, about your failure, because you need other believers. You need their love, you need their encouragement, and you need their accountability, and you need their prayers. And one of the most significant signs of true brokenness when it comes to a person or it comes to a church is openness. We're willing to be transparent about our struggles so that we can rally around one another to find that encouragement and accountability in prayer. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, are you hurting emotionally this morning? Are you knowing outward pressure that's breaking your heart? Are you hurting physically with some physical adversity? Are you hurting spiritually, struggling with the sin? The answer's here. Jesus is the great I am. Whatever you need, He is. But as we have emphasized this morning, as we've emphasized in previous messages, the way to come to Him, and the only way to come to Him, is by, by being brutally honest and transparent. You can't hide. You can't try to cover up. You can't try to minimize, justify, excuse yourself. And you can do that because Jesus already took the judgment for your sin. You can come in your the worst of failures as a believer. Knowing that you're going to be met, as we talked about last Sunday... By a high priest who gives mercy when we sin and gives grace in our trials. And all he asks is, be honest. Come to the light of my presence and let me shine on you. And as I expose the darkness, confess it. I quoted 1 John a little bit earlier. If we walk in the light, even as He is in the light, and walking in the light is walking what? In honesty, transparency, truth. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, because there's no shadow in God, no darkness in God, what's the promise? The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. God does not require perfection for you to come to Jesus. But He does require total honesty. And He can handle your honesty. He can handle your failures. What He hates is hypocrisy. And for us to live a lie.
with him and with one another. So as we celebrate today, let's examine ourselves, as we mentioned earlier. And as we examine ourselves, let's be very honest with God. And as we're honest with God, let's be willing to be honest with one another. You don't have to shout it to the entire church family. But seek out a believer or two that you can go to. Share with them your struggle. Will you pray for me? Will, can I count on you to encourage me, to provide accountability? And that will be the first step towards victory. Men, go ahead and take your places. And as they're taking their places, uh, bow with me in prayer. Oh, Father, how we thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he died for us at our very worst when we were yet enemies of the Godhead. And as Romans tells us, if you were willing to sacrifice your Son when we were at our very worst, when we were your enemies... How much more now will you freely give us all things? How much more will you give us your mercy and your grace? And Lord, thank you. Thank you because of what Christ accomplished. We talk about the fact that we come to Jesus initially not on the basis of our works, our efforts, but what he accomplished through faith alone. Well, Lord, it's no different after you've been saved for 10 years. And we do struggle. We do fail. We do sin as believers. We do deny you by our attitudes, our lives, our conduct. So thank you. Just as we came to you initially in faith, we can come to you now, even through this Lord's Supper, not on the basis of our efforts where we've obviously failed you, but on the basis of the finished work of Christ, that you took the judgment, you took the punishment for us, And that's been accomplished. It's been done. And as a result, we can be honest, knowing we will not be blown away by you because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's very obvious. The only thing that you really hate in a believer's life is hypocrisy. An unwillingness to be honest and transparent. So, Father, in each of our individual lives in this church family, bring brokenness. A brokenness that would result in openness. And an openness that would lead us not only to your grace, but the loving arms of one another. So thank you for your body. Sacrifice for us. Your body that bore our sins on Calvary's cross. Thank you for the blood that was spilt on that cross to cleanse us from our sin. And thank you after giving up your body, shedding your blood, you rose again from the dead. And you're the host of this table. As we come, you're here, fully prepared to give mercy and grace to those who in honesty and transparency ask for it. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.